Hello and welcome to the Life Enchanted Podcast. We're on a mission to optimize our lives through faith, health, wisdom, and much more. Thank you for joining us on our journey. Here now is our host, Nick Carlisle. What is good, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Life Enchanted Podcast, where it is my duty to explore all things related to living an optimized and fulfilling life. I personally am on the never-ending journey to improve myself and figured why not share my findings and my conversations with as many people as possible. This episode is brought to you by MyLifeEnchanted.com, which is where you can find all things related to the Life Enchanted movement. You can sign up for my email newsletter on there, read my blog, check out some apparel I designed, learn how to support me through Patreon, and a bunch of other stuff as well. Also, please consider leaving a rating and possibly a review of the podcast on whatever platform you're using. Your feedback helps other people discover the show and join the movement. My guest for today is the man Trey Ratcliffe. Trey is a very interesting, insightful, and inspiring dude. He is the founder of StuckInCustoms.com, which is the world's number one travel photography blog, and Google has actually tracked 140 billion online views of Trey's photos. That's billion with a B, folks, 140 billion. He's the first person to ever have an HDR photograph hung in the Smithsonian. He has millions of followers across social media. He operates a multi-million dollar company, and he continues to put out content that is on another level. Beyond photography, though, Trey seems to be a Jedi of consciousness, which we talk about a lot in this episode, being egoless and fully present in the moment and whatnot. You know I like to nerd out on that stuff. But in that conversation, Trey does bring up his experiences with psychedelics and his thoughts surrounding them. And I want to be perfectly clear here that I am not promoting the use of psychedelic drugs. I do think that there is a place for them in this world, especially in the treatment of mental illness, which science is absolutely proving. But they are dangerous, they are powerful, and most of them are illegal. With that said, though, I am really stoked for you guys to listen to this wide-ranging episode with the one and only Trey Ratcliffe. All right, we're live. Trey, thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Hey, sure. My pleasure. So the first question I want to ask you stems um, from my own selfish desires because it's not every day I get to speak with one of the best photographers in the world. And I've recently started dabbling a bit in digital photography and nerding out with my Nikon uh, D5300. And knowing what you know now, do you have some practical advice that you would give someone like me just starting out in digital photography, learning about ISO and aperture and shutter speed and all that? Yeah, this is uh, it's a good question. I might even take it back another level of magnitude or abstract even further back and think about the overall reason for photography I I think that photography is probably the greatest creative tool now for helping people to uh, create themselves. Mm. And I think it's a a wonderful thing. Um, In a lot of ways, I think of photography as a sideways meditation. You know, it's really hard to meditate. Um, It takes a lot of practice, a lot of time, a lot of dedication. But when you take photos, you can be very, very present and very mindful. And I I think that's a, a good kind of approach to it instead of worrying about all the technical stuff yeah um now the technical stuff is important 
And, you know, photography tends to attract very, uh, you know, clever, uh, type A, figure out, figure it out, geeky kind of people, which is fine. And so sometimes they get a little bit pulled into the technical side and they're unable to release and relax into the right brained kind of floating leaf side of the creativity. Mm. Now, the way I got to know these things like ISO and aperture and shutter speed and all this stuff, um, I, I never went to school for photography or read a book for photography. It's about 12 years ago when I was 35. Now I'm 27. I got my first camera and I just kind of figured it out myself. It took me a long time and I'm the sort of person that doesn't really like taking lessons or doesn't really listen to teachers. <laughs> I like to figure it out. Not that I don't trust them. I just kind of like to have my own foundation. And so I would basically just play with it, right? Um, and I think it's fine to go on automatic um, for a lot of these cameras because if you think about it, really what you're buying is a computer with a lens attached. Mm -hmm. And the computer is really smart. Like 95% of the time, it will make the same decisions a professional would if you put everything in manual and chose the aperture, shutter speed, and ISO yourself. So I think maybe that's the first step is just staying in auto and do some storytelling, get your composition right, uh, work on that. And then I would baby step into aperture priority mode. Mm. You don't need to go right into manual. You know, that's a little hardcore. But if you jump into aperture priority mode, then the only thing you need to adjust is the aperture. And it will the camera will automatically figure out the shutter speed and the ISO for you. So then you can start to play with like, oh, what does f2.8 do? What does f11 do? What does f24 do? Um, for example, it took me hmm, probably three years, honestly, to figure out what f-stop did. Um, but then when I figured it out, I really figured it out. And then I started to add in other things. Got you. So when you, because I know that you kind of put on your computer science hat to dive into photography and um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but long story short, you, you dove into your camera and you basically reprogrammed it with your own algorithms or algorithms that were inspired by algorithms created by NASA. Um, and when you did that, were you basically reprogramming what it was doing in automatic? Well, in a way, let me um, kind of uh, unpack what you just said. I do think of the photography process, the alpha to omega, is everything from snapping the picture on your on your camera to getting it onto your computer to editing it and then having a finished product that goes to some location, either online or into a gallery or your portfolio or whatever. So I didn't actually do any reprogramming on the camera. It's very hard to get into the camera and adjust the firmware because for whatever reason, all these Japanese companies, they have a very different approach than, you know, an Apple or a Android Google system, which have very open architectures and let you go in there and make apps and hack around. So you, they have these very closed architectures that you can't really get into the camera. But once you get that digital file or that raw file onto your computer, then you have total mastery over that domain. And then you can start running algorithms and things like that on it. So, gotcha. you know, I... I try not to think about a big difference between the camera and the computer because it's just a digital file and you're moving it from one computer to another computer. Mm. It doesn't really matter where the where the uh, manipulation happens. Um, I also feel the same way about the light itself. You know, a lot of old school photographers who generally don't like me 
which is fine. <laughs> uh, I don't care. But they, um, they often claim that a real photo is all taken in the camera, right? All the light that's really there or whatever. And you make the adjustments like with lighting on a set or using flashes or whatever. So you get the light correct the first time. Then it goes into the camera and then it's done. But to me, the time that you adjust the light seems to be completely arbitrary. Why, you know, why use flashes and gels and lights before you take the photo? Why is that okay? Why is it not okay to do it on the computer? To me, you're still fucking around with a light. Mm-hmm. Why does it matter if it happens before or after the click? It's still your own creativity. So I have this very fluid um, feel for the entire creative process. So, so the pressure to get it exactly right when you click the picture isn't as much when you have so much you can do in post-production. Yeah, even if you're a great photographer and you're in front of a beautiful scene, your first photo will be quite banal and literal and boring because if you shoot in RAW, which you should shoot in RAW, it does kind of flatten the image in a way. And you're only going to see a little bit of light in there because the, the sensor and the original photo won't be nearly as sensitive as your retina. So you can take that RAW file onto your computer and... I recommend you use this program called Aurora HDR. Mm-hmm. Um, full disclosure, I, I helped create this with a Ukrainian company. It's, a, it's available for Mac and um, PC. In fact, last year it won Mac's app of the year. It's fantastic. We've oh, had like awesome. 4 million downloads. Wow. And I, would, I, honestly, I still use Lightroom to organize my photos, but I use Aurora to process my photos. Um, I just think it's better. I mean, that's why I made it. I wanted my own my own app. And so that will help you adjust all the light. And even though it's called Aurora HDR, it doesn't mean you have to have this very strong HDR look, but it has all these other features and tools on there that really help you overlay your personality and your feeling on top of the scene. That's sweet. I'm definitely going to check that out. So I know you studied computer science, as I said, um, and I believe you studied at at SMU, correct? That's right. And then you had a career in computer science. Can you share how you got into photography? Yeah, so I was comp sci in math, and then my first job was with Anderson Consulting, which is now called Accenture, and we did different technology implementations for different kinds of companies. That's kind of how I got to learn the how the world works, how the business world works. Um, I started a few companies, most of which were failures. Even the ones that did okay were they <laughs> they weren't that great, but. When I was in my mid-30s, I started an online game company. I'm a big gamer. I love games. And um, we had this really cool online game that I created, and it was doing pretty well in beta. And we started to have studios around the world, like in Ukraine and Kuala Lumpur. So I was traveling a little bit. And I thought, man, I should get a camera because these places are pretty cool. I feel like I should do something, you know. And I, I, there's always, even though I was pretty good at tech and that sort of stuff, there's always this throbbing in the back of my head that I was meant to do something else with my life, but I didn't didn't know what it was. Like I've always written. Um, I even wrote a whole novel that got rejected by like ten publishing houses in my twenties. I thought, well, maybe that's not for me. And then I started to, yeah, I've just enjoyed writing, but I thought, like, I should do something else creative. I made pots. I'm a, I have a pottery wheel. I do ceramics. And I always found myself quite calm and very present 
when I was doing creative stuff. Now, I didn't know anything about being present and mindfulness and this sort of thing back then, but I could kind of sense it, even if you don't have the intellectual scaffolding to understand what's happening with being present. So I got a camera when I went to Kuala Lumpur, and there was this beautiful sunset. I'll never forget it. I took a photo, and the photo totally sucked. <laughs> I thought, man, this doesn't make any sense, and it kind of made me angry. Or angry is the right word. Anxious, that's not the right word either, but... Uh, man, what's going on? What's the difference between a camera sensor and the retina? What's the difference between the way a computer screen interprets an image and the way the brain interprets what the retina sees? And so this kind of sent me on this lifelong quest um, to figure all this out, and that was the beginning. And so at the same time, the, the company, little game company that I had, it had grown to like 100 people. And it's, when I started, it was just like 20 people, which was great. Then it got to be a bigger company, and I don't like. I'm not. I'm a shitty manager, honestly. I don't know how to motivate people that don't know how to motivate themselves. I'm great, like with a small team of dreamers that get the vision. Like my team now is small. We're about you know less than ten people. Mm. I don't really have to motivate them. They know how to vo- motivate themselves. So when it gets to be big, I don't know how to manage that many people. Um, it's not really in my skill sets, and I don't really want to do it. So anyway, we brought in another manager to manage the company, and I was just kind of. The game was already out there, and it was the design was there, and I wasn't really needed anymore. So I would just kind of spend all my time traveling and goofing off, and then I just eventually left the company and did photography um, and the blog full-time. Is, is that game still online? No. <laughs> it crashed and burned. Um, oh. We uh, the, the first one, you know, there's a game called EVE Online, which is a... It's sort of like World of Warcraft in space, I guess, from this really cool Icelandic company called CCP. And I got to be friends with those guys. I love them. And I said, hey, I have a, I want to use your license and make like a web version of your game. I won't go into the design, but it was pretty cool. People loved it. And then when our new manager came in, they're like, they scrapped that license and decided to do some original IP. And it didn't really do very well. So mm-hmm. it kind of crashed and burned after I left. How in the world did you go from just taking photos while you were on vacation to having your photos hung in the Smithsonian? Right. <laughs> well, I immediately started my blog while in Kuala Lumpur. So I was enjoying using these NASA HDR algorithms, command line stuff at the time, because I thought I was onto something, and I, I was. And those so were I being used in post, right? Right. Okay, right. got you. And then so every day I was sharing my photos online, huge res photos. Uh, back then all there was, by the way, was Flickr. There wasn't any Facebook or Instagram or anything really. So I put stuff on Flickr and that was kind of, and then I would start my blog on WordPress. And every day I would put up a new photo, full res with no watermark, creative commons. And I would talk about how I did it, start a little tutorial, all this sort of stuff. And I knew people liked my photos. Uh, well, some people, photographers hated my photos and hated me, which I didn't care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I noticed the general public really liked them. Is that know? because you were just doing so much in post and you were putting it out there under Creative Commons? That... Yeah, they just looked different than other photo- photos. They were mm-hmm. bright and vibrant and colorful, and they used these HDR techniques, and the public just really liked them. Not all the public, but most of the public. And so anyway, they just, the Smithsonian, they have this online contest every year with different categories. 
and I submitted this um, HDR photo from a fireworks show in Austin, Texas, which was really cool. It looked completely unlike any firework photo that's ever been taken in the history of mankind. Um, by the way, I'm saying this, I'm an egoless guy. I don't take myself seriously or any of this stuff. I think this is the most important gift that anyone would give to themselves is not to take yourself seriously, especially if you're creative. So when I'm saying this nice stuff about my work, I'm just trying to say it in an objective Wikipedia-like way. Mm -hmm. So anyways, so this photo uh, was really cool, and people loved it, and it won first prize for this Smithsonian contest. And when you win first prize, they hang it in the Smithsonian for a year. And um, I never got to go see it, but my, my wife and son took a drive out to Washington, D.C., and they got their picture taken with it, so that was pretty cool. And then, so that was only up there for a year, but now in the last three years, they started a, a Burning Man exhibition at the Smithsonian, and I have three uh, photos up there for that exhibition now. My TA and I, I'm a high school teacher, we were going through your Instagram earlier today, and your your Burning Man photos are absolutely unbelievable, man. There's some really cool shots in there. I highly encourage the the listeners to go check those out. You mentioned a, um, having an egoless mindset, and I've noticed that. I've noticed your humility um, throughout your interviews and some podcasts that I've listened to and whatnot. Is is that something that you've cultivated, or is that something that you've always had? No, um, actually, I think I had quite a strong ego in my 20s and early 30s, and it kind of served me well, but kind of didn't really serve me well in a way, you, you know, because you look back now, you see people with big egos, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. But you do it in a non-judgmental way, because there's sort of this ramp of consciousness, right, where you think about someone completely unconscious at the bottom of the ramp and like the Buddha up at the top of the ramp. And I'm somewhere on that continuum, kind of hopefully moving up it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But as you move up this ramp, you do notice people in different locations on the ramp, but in a very non-judgmental way. You're like, oh, okay. Now, this wasn't this wasn't something I came to easily, but I knew I slipped into it accidentally in my mid to eight thirty, late, mid to late thirties, as I was getting into photography because. I would go to Iceland every summer, for example, and I would take my camera and I would listen to music and just walk around and take photos. Sometimes I wouldn't see humans for days. And I was super present. I was right in the moment. I could feel my feet, you know, I used to step on the, the grass there, sort of this tundra. You kind of feel your, your foot kind of sink like about half an inch in. I thought, oh, this is wonderful. You're just walking and it's beautiful and... You take photos every now and then. Now, I was being super present. I wasn't worried about the future. I wasn't worried about the past. But I didn't know it at the time. I just felt like this feels good. So then, maybe about five or six years ago, um, I had a friend invite me to a yoga, uh, meditation, wellness, hiking retreat here in New Zealand. And... Um, and I was enjoying it, and he gave me this book by Eckhart Tolle called A New Earth. He goes, Trey, you should read this. I was like, okay. So I started reading it. I was like, holy shit, this is a thing, <laughs> you know? Like consciousness and mindful, this is a thing. And so Eckhart explained it so beautifully, and then that allowed me to put this intellectual scaffolding around what I was already going through, 
and it kind of sped me up this path of consciousness and I really got into it you know I started getting into Zen and Alan Watts and reading all this material about it and it has accelerated my path of consciousness and really helped the complete dissolution of the ego which as far as I can tell has been the best thing for me my friends my family and my creativity can you try and articulate what consciousness is? You kind of touched on it as being present and not living in the future or not dragging the past into the present. But can you expand further on, on what you mean by consciousness? Yeah, sure. This is a bit of an ineffable subject, but I do try to wrap words around mm-hmm. it best I can. Um, I think if you look at the source of it, I think the source of it is just pure love. And I, you know, I love photography, I love people, I love my family. Um, I'm just very passionate. I know this is like a pure white source of of consciousness. Um, In a way, it's sort of a a no mind. What uh, Zen says, it's mind of no mind. It's just an emptiness. Um, And... You know, I think one of my favorite books I recommend to people is called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. It's also my the book of one of my friends, Tim Chang, one of his favorite books. Uh, I recommend people listen to his podcast, too, on the on Kevin Rose, when Kevin Rose interviewed Tim Chang. Mm. Anyway, um, he has this wonderful concept in there, and I think this is a good example of how to explain consciousness. So... You know, when you're walking around outside, you might, you know, see some clouds going by. And you just look at the clouds, you're like, oh, okay, that's a nice cloud. You never look at a cloud and go like, that's a shit cloud. What a terrible looking cloud. Mm-hmm. Same thing with trees, you know, you're just walking through a forest and you see trees. And you're like, wow, these are nice trees. You don't say like, that's a shitty looking tree. You might see a, a small tree that's kind of small and bent over and not, not very big and kind of spindly. And you don't think it's an ugly tree. It's like, oh, that tree is just not getting enough light. That's just kind of how it is. So anyway, over time, you start to equate this with your thoughts. You can watch your thoughts go by, like clouds or trees, in a very non-judgmental way. And you notice that when some of these thoughts get stuck in your brain and they bother you, they're getting stuck on this fictional egoic construct, which is unconsciousness. That's not... Conscious. So the, the more stuff that flows through you, the more you're sort of in this present state of mind. And you have a lot of energy left over to create and love. So this is one thing that I, I got to understand intellectually and I felt it. And then I further explored this through using drugs like um, psychedelics, psilocybin, uh, DMT. Um, I even imbibed the crystallized poison of the Sonoran Desert Toad in the form of 5-MeO-DMT, mm. and in these states, which are super conscious, you actually get to experience infinity, and it's a very intellectual, beautiful thing where you just see so much love and beauty, and it removes the filters and really lets you plug into, I don't think there's a really, there is a personal conscious, I think, but it's sort of masked. I think you're actually plugging into a global consciousness, a global tapestry of consciousness Mm. what would you say to people who just heard you say that and said oh man this guy's a druggie drugs are bad for you you know all all of the above statements because because i'm right there with you and i act 
absolutely can understand what you are saying. But the majority of people who have never experimented with anything like that and just have the narrative of what the media and what their parents and just traditional narratives have instilled into their mind, what would you say to those people? Well, I would tell all those people that you've been lied to most of your life and you've been brainwashed. There's a number of reasons you've been lied to and brainwashed. Some is misinformation. Some is steering you away from it uh, on purpose. Now, I think one thing people are often worried about, and I was worried about this, I didn't start experimenting on this stuff until five or six years ago, um, that they're addictive. And they're not, there's different kinds of drugs. They have this huge, you know, Venn diagram of all drugs are bad. This is completely ridiculous. Um, I, would, I, I do think that there are bad drugs. I think there's like heroin and meth and this kind of stuff, which is really bad for you. But it's a world of different than psilocybin and DMT and ayahuasca and, and these sorts of things and mushrooms, acid. Um, none of this stuff is addictive. And it gives you direct access to consciousness, to yourself. These are wonderful self-exploration tools. Um, they're totally safe. You know, what, I think one of the most important things is you go into it, it seems called set and setting your mindset going into it, like, what do you want to explore, you know, um, and where are you, you know, uh, what is your setting, are you with friends, are you in a safe place, um, and then you have just wonderful transformative experiences, and I would, you know, even for skeptics, which I understand, I was a skeptic too, and um, I didn't even start doing this stuff until I had some doctors that I go to Burning Man with. They told me how safe it was and how they do it and what the actual effects are and how they're not addictive. I thought, okay, then I feel really good about it. And now that I've had direct experience, I feel fantastic about it. I, I think if everyone on earth were to try DMT or have a counseled uh, psilocybin session, that there would be so much love and peace in the world and all this nonsense that's going on with uh mostly just dissipate, you know, like fog in the morning. Um, I'd recommend a great book by a skeptic. Um, this book is called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. And he is also the author of uh, The Herbivore's Dilemma, uh, New York Times bestselling author. Great guy. He's, he's in his 50s, I think, maybe 60. Uh, real skeptic, uh, scientist. Uh, you know, into biology, and he experiments on all this stuff himself, going into it as a total skeptic, and he talks about how it got outlawed, why it became a bad thing in the 60s and 70s, um, the whole history of it, and now, when you look at the modern science of it, there's all these fantastic experiments like MAPS, M-A-P-S, and there's experiments going on at John Hopkins, um, where they do counseled psilocybin sessions for people with depression, PTSD and the success rates are unbelievable. So I think a lot of people think that, you know, these are just party drugs, you use them and go to a rave with your friends and stuff. But there's another kind where you, uh, you go into a counseled session with a counselor and you kind of write down some intentions and they do everything from psilocybin to MDMA um, and all these sorts of things. And people have incredible breakthroughs. These success rates are absolutely amazing and they're better than a lot of these antidepressants that are going on, which, look, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, but some people are like, oh, big pharma, they're your enemy and stuff like that. 
But, I mean, logically, in a way, they do have a vested interest in selling, you know, millions of pills um, and keeping people. They're not working. It's an epidemic, not just in America, but all around the world. And some of these natural substances that 99% of our ancestors used to regulate their moods and regulate their lives, this stuff is now coming back. And there's hard science behind it. So I think if, if you're against it, then I would I would really be introspective, like, why am I against it? Um, you know, challenge yourself to see the other side, look at other things, and listen to people like me. I'm a normal guy. I've got my life on the rails. You know, I have a multi-million dollar art business. Um, I, I know millionaire and billionaire friends that do this stuff uh, on a regular basis. These people don't want to fuck up their lives. You know, they're not going to end up on a street corner, you know, begging for money. This has enhanced their lives, enhanced their families, their friends, and everything around them. So I, I really challenge people to question things that maybe they've been lied to their whole life. Do people who dose these things or experiment with these things, is it is it something that needs to be done often? Or, I mean, in your own experience, how often are, are you experimenting with these substances to see the effects? Right. Good question. Um, there is a... Uh, certification of different um, use categories. In the clinical world, people that have depression and PTSD, sometimes just having a single um, five or six hour high dose psilocybin session with a counselor, that's enough. That clears them away for a year or two, you know, and they're fine. Um, you know, I know we know this guy, Kevin Rose, he went into it. He's not depressed or PTSD, but he had some dad issues. Like, you know, his dad had died and he had never worked through some things with his dad. And so he went into a high dose psilocybin session with a counselor, a trusted counselor who's done, you know, hundreds of these and he worked through these issues and now he's much better. So it doesn't have to be, you know, you can say in a way everyone might have a little bit of PTSD or a lot of PTSD. Um, so that's one kind of thing. So you, you can just do it once every two years and you're good, right? You know, no antidepressant, no anything. Now, if there's another category of people that I call people that are well, like me, you know, I'm mentally healthy, um, got a good, happy family, got a good network of friends, um, everything's going fine in my life, right? Um, but I'm just curious, like, what's going on? Isn't existence strange? Why are we here? Why are we flown around a rock? What, what can I do to be a more loving and creative person? What can I do to be a better human, more conscious? What can I do to help the world? And so these substances, if you go into it with these mindset, you can do them once a month. Um, particularly with, um, it's different every time, depending on sentence setting with uh, either mushrooms or acid. Um, it's different depending on the friends you do it with different depending on the music you listen to and as opposed to a dream which kind of disappears and drowns after you wake up these things stick with you and the things you see and the love you experience it opens up new rooms in your mind in your consciousness that you can revisit anytime actually when you try these things you start to realize like man alcohol is like one of the worst drugs it's terrible you know when you compare it to these other ones I think there's something to be said there about how you keep coming back to love. And I mean, I, I'm very strong in my faith and I, I follow Jesus and the works of Jesus and the life that he lived here. And um, 
I believe in God and, and the Bible says that God is love, right? And the, I think there's something connected there that these spiritual experiences that you're having, that people are having in this flood of love and the teaching from that I've experienced from the word and just how love seems to be the answer to a lot of what humanity is facing. And it's just kind of hidden in plain sight. Absolutely. Love will fix everything. I'm sure of it. And you can see some people that are so unwilling to, to love because they have so much fear in their lives or so many problems or such strong egos that gets in the way of love. Mm-hmm. I know that meditation is a big part of your routine and what you do. And I just want to kind of get um, a glimpse into what that looks like for you. So just first off, do you practice TM style or transcendental or do you focus more on a mindfulness base? Um, I'm more mindfulness based, I would say. I try many different types of meditation. I jump around. Um, uh, lately, I've been doing the Sam Harris one. He has a cool app called Waking Up and he has a wonderful guided meditation. It's great for people that have never done it, or even if you've done it. Um, you just listen to him. He's got that nice voice, and he kind of walks you through it. You know, give it five or ten minutes a day. That seems nice. I do, I get in my hot tub, and I have uh, these meditation beads that I wear around my neck. Um, there's 108 beads, and you basically take a full breath on each bead, and by the time you make it around, it's been all um, 108. It's been about 30 minutes. That's a nice little run. And I have a little mantra, a little two-syllable mantra that I came up with. You're not supposed to tell anyone your mantra, whatever. <laughs> but it was a word I took from Alan Watts. And so I have like one syllable on the inhale, one on the exhale. And inevitably, thoughts come into your head like, oh, I need to get the mail, I need to get my mom a present, all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But then you just kind of let it go like a cloud going by. And every time you let a let a thought go, you get a little bit better, like doing a curl with your arm or whatever. You get a little bit better letting thoughts go. And sometimes during your meditation, it'll be full of thoughts. Sometimes it'll be half full of thoughts. Sometimes only the last five minutes will be fine without any thought. Um, but it's, it's the effort that's most important. Other times, I don't. Sometimes I go days without meditating, but I do create. Either I edit photos or I take photos. I try to spend half an hour or an hour doing that or writing and that's a very present mindful activity I, I think of that as meditation also even though it I don't think it's classically defined as meditation I think if you're if you're consumed in I saw on your your blog you wrote about the flow state yeah. if you're in the flow state you're meditating it's the same thing exactly yes agreed and you can do that through I mean like I said in that blog post when I'm putting on my headphones and I'm at the gym by myself playing basketball or whether I'm having an awesome conversation with someone or whether it is mindfulness or whether it's I'm snowboarding down a mountain all of those times that you just activate into that mode where you're not thinking and you're just fully absorbed into that present moment just doing what you do without thinking that that's that's where life is that's where life happens yeah I'm with you man I'm with you yeah so your new book, uh, it came out in April, I believe, early April, yeah? Yeah. Titled, Under the Influence, How to Fake Your Way into Getting Rich on Instagram. There's a subtitle there as well, but it seems like the title is a little bit misleading, but also very helpful because the true objective from what I've read of your book is 
something much different than just exposing the world to all these misleading accounts and fake followers that exist um, on Instagram. So what prompted you to write the book? Well, yeah, I almost called the book How to Stay Zen on Social Media, but I decided to go with this more clickbaity title because we live in a clickbaity world. Yep. The, the subtitle I gave it was uh, Influencer Fraud, Selfies, Anxiety, Ego, and Mass Delusional Behavior. So what prompted me to write it is, I guess I am an influencer, even though I think that word is <laughs> <a little> silly. <laughs> uh, I, re- I was speaking at this travel photography conference uh, for social media in Toronto, and I was at this little, one of these dreadful after-speaker parties, and this this gal came up to me, and her eyes were as wide as saucers, and she goes, are you an influencer like us? And I was thinking, what the hell is an influencer? I can't even influence my kids to clean their room, so I don't think so. And so um, I started doing more and more influency type stuff. My main business, by the way, is fine art photography. We sell giant prints to collectors around the world. Um, I saw yesterday limited. you were in an amazing house out out there in New Zealand, and the dude had some of your prints on his walls, and that was pretty epic from what I saw. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. We, that's uh, Sir Michael Hill. He's a royal knight of the realm, and uh, <laughs> he's one of my collectors. We've got it that are in the NFL, we've got some Hollywood people, I'm not going to be all name droppy, but we've got some cool, cool people. Mark so Zuckerberg, I saw, has some of your pieces. He has a piece, he's not an, I wouldn't call him a collector, he had one of my early pieces before they were limited edition. That's awesome, yeah. that's super cool. So, um, uh, yeah, so that's the main business, but since I travel around and have a fairly decent social media following, um, I team up with brands you know like i saw you you teamed up with some brands that fit layer into your lifestyle like whole foods and things like that i I try to do the same thing so one of them is the ritz carlton and some other luxury travel brands and they pay really well and help fly me around and me and my team can stay for free and all that stuff and in exchange i i say nice things about them on social media and give them photos which is fine it's the kind of same kind of stuff i'm doing anyway and i think that they're a great company well, I've ended up at some of these luxury travel events, not necessarily the Ritz-Carlton, and there's other influencers there. And so, you know, I go talk to these people. It tends to be a lot of females, but it's all over the map. And I, you know, man, I'm like you. I like to have deep conversations. I like to get in there. Like, mm-hmm. what's going on in your head, yo? Yeah, I like yeah. to figure out minds, what's going on. And so some of these people are just like hollow, and there's an emptiness and a lacking you know, and I don't expect everyone to, you know, have the philosophical tete-a-tete of Socrates or anything, but I want to see, like, what's going on? And I'm like, you know, how are these people influencers? What's going on? They're just, like, dumb, <laughs> or I don't know. <laughs> They're just, like, no substance. Yeah. And I look at their photos, and sometimes their photos aren't that great, and their quotes aren't that great, or their descriptions. I'm like, what is this? You know, what is going on here? And so then I started looking into them. And sometimes they would have way more followers than me. I think I have about 175,000. They might have half a million or whatever. And then I found this tool called socialblade.com where you can look at historical follower growth. That's the only way really to see if they're fake. or That's one of many ways. It's a decent way. 
And then you can look at their historical history and you see like, oh, Jesus Christ. You know, on, on this day, they bought $40,000 or 40,000 followers. On this day, they got 6,000 followers. On this day, they got 60,000 followers. So you can see like this is unnatural growth. You mm -hmm. can just look at it mathematically. I'm like, holy shit. So then I realized they were also buying comments and buying likes. So they're buying fake engagement. And then they go to these companies, these luxury travel companies, and they say, hey, look at me. I'm the bee's knees. Um, give me, you know, $100,000 and fly me first class. And let me stay for free and drink and eat for free. And I'll put stuff on social media for you. And it's not just, you know, travel. It's everything. There's beauty, health. Um, you know, and you're, you, you should look at this guy called the Posh PT. He's in my book. He's a personal trainer. Uh, he does it. And so, but, you know, all these followers that they buy, they're useless because either they are scripts uh, that are running on a remote computer, so it's non-human activity. If you get any feedback, it's non-human activity, which, of course, is not what brands like. Um, and to me, this is just outright fraud. Not only is it unethical, but it's illegal and fraud, and it's it makes a big mess out of all of social media. It's just yeah. like, I don't even be part of it anymore. And and so I, so that's half the book is where I expose what's really going on. And we even built a fake account to show how this works. And that was pretty fun. So I show how we did that. That's awesome. I've been real quick. Sorry. Oh, I've, sorry go ahead. I've been targeted actually by uh, numerous of those accounts. And I was actually conned by one when I was early in my podcast trying to, to grow it as I, um, as I still am, but an account titled like, uh, it was some like religious account that saw that I had a podcast with a pastor, I'm assuming or something, but the dude, um, DM'd me and he said, Hey, I'll post. And he had about like 275,000 followers. Um, and prior to looking at his page, he, he DM'd me and said, I'll, I'll post your graphic for this episode for $45 onto my timeline. Um, do it through PayPal. And so I, I said, well, that seems like an awesome deal, especially if you have 245,000 followers. So I went onto his page and looked through because a, a little red flag came up, like, you know, seems too good to be true. Um, so I went onto his page and looked at a lot of his photos and they were getting numerous likes that it seemed proportional to his following because sometimes you see someone with 50,000 followers and their their posts are only getting you know 35 likes or something like that and you're like what like okay this is obvious but this guy was getting like 5,000 likes here 6,000 likes there 10,000 likes there and then he was getting quite a bit of comments as well and I actually clicked on profiles that were commenting and they looked like legit profiles a lot of them were foreign which I'm not sure is related or not but um, it seemed like there was a lot of Middle Eastern profiles commenting but whatever um, so I took him up on it and I paid him the $45 and he posted it to his timeline and I believe it is still on his timeline um, and it got I think like 200 likes when all his other pictures were getting in the thousands, I got zero followers from it. My numbers for the downloads for the podcast didn't go up at all. And then after I paid the money, I had all of these, I'm assuming, sister accounts start to DM me. Hey, do you want me to post to my page? Hey, do you want me to post to my page? And it right. was just like a flood. And that persisted for like a month and a half of these fraudulent accounts trying to get a quick buck from me and I was just thinking like man there's there's some dude in his basement somewhere just making a killing from idiots like me right now 
Yeah, I know it's, it's a big mess out there, and regular people can't figure it out. I mean, who has the time to figure it out? Yeah. And like, well, people like you pay 45 bucks, and they're like, and you actually did a deep dive, and which is good. And that's right. A lot of these fake accounts, these bots, they come out of Middle East or India or South America. Um, sometimes they are based on real people. Um, another reason I figured this out is because, like, I, I looked up when I tried to follow someone and somebody I was following 5,000 people. I'm like, well, how am I following 5,000 people? I mean, sure, sometimes I, I drunk follow some Asian models, but I don't, <laughs> I don't drunk follow 5,000 of them. But anyway, so then I started looking at who I'm following, and I'm following like a lot of people in the Middle East and all these people I would never follow. One of them is the Posh PT. I'm like, I would never follow this guy. He's a douche. And so anyway, I, um, I realized that I had put my email and password for Instagram into a few different websites. You know, there's websites, mm. I, I'm not naming names because I don't know which one did it, but there's like statistics websites and other websites where you kind of manage your Instagram or, you know, look at stats or find new people to follow or whatever. And anyway, apparently they took my name and password and so other people can follow you. So bots... Bots can follow anybody, especially if they have your your name and password. So I thought, oh man, this is all rotten, um, and what what a big mess. Um, but then, really, the second half of the book is about how to stay zen on social media because I make the case, I think fairly strongly, that a lot of the stuff you see on Instagram is not real and it's based on a false narrative. So I think a, a good example is this. For example, the travel industry, travel, luxury travel. You might see some girl, lady, like sitting in a bubble bath with a champagne and there's a view of the beach or whatever, right? Like, oh man, they've got a great life. Well, A, this is this could be based on a completely false narrative where they, they fraudulently got themselves in there and they don't really have all these followers, they don't have all these likes. And it does two things. One, it makes everyone else feel like a loser and causes a massive amount of anxiety. Two, it creates a ton of copycats, and now everyone wants to be an influencer because they want to do that, but that's not even a real thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, an, it's an incredibly, and that's what I consider to be mass delusional behavior, that all these people are out there copycatting something that's based on a false narrative. And it's the strangest time in human sociology um, there are hundreds of millions of people who are engaging in mass delusional behavior. And that's kind of why I wrote the book. I'm like, guys, this is the opposite of mindfulness. There's another path. You can still use social media in a, in a loving, positive, conscious way. But just I'm trying to like open the door a little bit on consciousness and mindfulness uh, by talking about all this crazy shit that's going on on Instagram. Because just like me, like I didn't know... Consciousness and mindfulness was a thing until I got a new earth. And I see so many unconscious people out there, especially on Instagram. I'm like, hey, guys, I kind of want to crack the door a little bit and show you, like, there is another path. Yeah. I'm no Eckhart Tolle or anything. I'm not claiming to be. But I do get it, and I want to kind of move people in this direction. So that is the real impetus behind the book. Yeah. How does one stay zen on social media, especially someone like me who needs to be active on social media? I'm trying to drive engagement. I need to to post often and I need to leverage social media, especially Instagram, to gain followers yeah, and I downloads. Think I think you're doing a good job because you're you're authentic and real and you're a good story. This is the key thing. Just be authentic and real and be a good storyteller. 
you have a huge advantage in that you've you've got a rocking body, you look amazing, <laughs> and uh, you're strong, and you're actually living what you do. You know, not everyone looks like you, so it's even harder for other people. So you have a huge advantage there. But I, I say in most circumstances, it doesn't even really matter how you look as long as you're authentic and real and a good storyteller. And I think if you go forward with love and sharing and inspiration and to help make people's life feel better, don't, you know, don't make them feel bad about this product they don't have or, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, or this lifestyle that, that you're leading is so awesome and theirs is shitty. Just, you can be very inspirational and share at the same time. There's, there's a loving, humble way to do this. It's the same way as, I think about like kids, right? I have my cute little girls, they, they'll sit there on the weekend and they'll, They'll, they'll make a little creation in construction paper and put some glitter glue on there, and then they'll run around and show everyone their creation. You know, there's no ego involved. They're just happy to share their creation. And I think that humans can do that. And you don't do it like in a humble brag kind of way. You just do it in an honest way. And people can detect that kind of authenticity. Um, and then, so that's one half of it. The other half of it is don't pay attention to the comments. I mean, you can read them and respond. You know, respond to the thoughtful ones. Um, but don't believe the bad ones who cares what people say, who cares how many likes you get. It literally doesn't matter. Um, but I would also say, don't, don't pay attention, not just to the bad comments, but also the good comments, right? Just don't listen to the good stuff and ignore the bad stuff. Just kind of like take it all with a grain of salt, you know, just be the dolphin that swims in the waves. Keep putting out quality stuff that inspires people and the right people will show up in your life at the right time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's that's sage advice, I believe, um, especially because I've heard it from numerous people who have significant followings. And they always talk about, like you said, telling stories, being authentic and, and pulling at emotion, not just putting some some stupid caption under a photo or some quote, but actually telling a story and, and tugging at the emotion through your caption of your followers or your listeners or whoever they are. Um, and that that will drive it even further. What do you think is going to happen here with this whole fraudulent social media world? I mean, it's clearly unsustainable and something's going to be done and it's going to come to a head. What what would you see happening? Yeah, good question. I, I see a few different futures. Um, so, hey, let's do a giveaway to your, your listeners. That'd be amazing. I just released this new online course with a lady named Lauren Bath. She's like Australia's number one influencer. And we we recorded a six-part online tutorial called How to Have Real Influence. Mm. And I did it because when I was recording the, doing the book, I was looking around at online courses and I couldn't find anything good. Like a lot of them were either scams or they didn't tell you any real information. But So basically it's, it's a six-week course. You get it through email. And uh, we have a video, like a 30-minute video, where we talk about uh, lessons learned, tips and tricks for Instagram, uh, ways to work with brands, uh, mistakes that we've made, successes that we've had, this sort of thing. So it's an an amazing course. And just we'll pick a, I don't know, do you do comments? We'll just pick a random commenter and give them a a freebie. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'll I'll generate a post, a a graphic that I'll put on social media or on Instagram um, next week and then... um then we'll put it out there and then we'll pick a someone who comments cool i'll put all the details in the show notes of this episode as well sweet 
Um, now, as for the future of Instagram slash social media, this is a good question. I've, I've really contemplated this. There's a great book by Yuval Noah Harari called Sapiens, and he's written other books to like Homo Deus and 21 Lessons for a 21st Century. And he's a historian and anthropologist. He's also a technologist. He looks at these big trends in, in human history. And he has many incredible breakthroughs, thoughts in there. Um, I read a lot of anthropology and history and science and biology. And he, he has come up with stuff that I've never heard before. And that's, I think, why he has such best-selling books. In fact, he credits his breakthroughs. Um, every year he does like a 60-day silent retreat. And this is when he starts to see the matrix of the world and history and everything. Anyway, wow. one of his many concepts in there, which is genius and makes sense when you think about it, is that humans are the only animal on the planet that collectively believe in a fiction. And when we all believe in the same fiction, it allows us to cooperate with strangers. This is why hundreds of thousands of humans can cooperate on something, even if they don't know each other. You won't see you know, chimpanzees doing this. They'll just be in little pods of 50 or 60. So anyway, an example of this fiction is um, a, a mile, right? There's no such thing as a mile. You can't see it or touch it. Um, it just doesn't exist. But we all believe in a mile, and we all agree on what a mile is. And so that allows us to cooperate with strangers around the world. You know, you see like, hey, you know, I'm going to go to Fiji, and I'm going to do a, you know, a 50-mile bike trip, right? I'm going to sign up. Well, you just know what you're getting into. You're not going to get there, and suddenly, like, a mile of an inch, you're like, oh, man, I got ripped off. So the same thing with an hour. You can't see or touch an hour, but it made it convenient for us to meet today at 8 a.m. New Zealand time. I know such thing as a pound or a dollar, but we all agree on it. Let's just cooperate with strangers. Okay, yes, this, this makes sense. It's a nice concept. I never heard it described like that. Of course, it makes intellectual sense. Um, of course, there's other stories that we all believe into. Um, things like, and I'm not, not I'm just, this is just an example. I'm not saying it's good or bad. Christianity, um, New Zealand, right? New Zealand technically doesn't exist, but we wrote it down on paper, so I guess it exists, mm, right? Yeah. Uh, nation states, nationalism. These are all stories that people believe in. There's good stories and bad stories. Uh, like the Dallas Cowboys is maybe a good story. Uh, there's bad stories. You know, like suicide bombers or whatever. Um, there's anyway. There's good and bad stories out there. Now, now that we've established that humans believe in fictions or stories, some of which are good or some of which are bad, there's there's new measurements now. There are followers, likes, and comments, which are becoming as important as the mile, the the pound, and the dollar, because you can you can trade these things for other metrics that we already believe in. Yeah. Right? If you can trade half a million followers for $100,000 cash, well, okay, you know, people are, people are doing this. In fact, uh, last year there was $2 billion that went into the Instagram influencer economy. They say by next year, 2020, there's going to be $10 billion with a B that goes into Instagram influencers. And if we can't trust these measurements, then we're sitting on top of a false economy. Mm -hmm. And this 
then becomes just like Venezuela. You know, Venezuela, no one believes, people stopped believing in the common fiction of the dollar now. And so now their economy is a wreck. Now when you go buy fruit, they don't even count your money anymore. They weigh your money like they weigh fruit. And so Instagram is going to turn into Venezuela where you just can't believe anything. And to, like, so I make the argument in there that it's an Instagram's best interest to clean this stuff up. Yeah. Because if we don't believe in that economy anymore, people will fall apart because people need something to believe in. Um, and it's, um, it's doing a huge disservice, I think, to society as a whole. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's bound to collapse if they don't do something. And it seems, I mean, with, with all the power and, and incredibly um, smart minds that are behind Instagram and in Silicon Valley and stuff, it seems like they're going to be able to figure out a solution here quick. Even if it's a, something as simple as that website you said, like there should be some, some algorithms they can run uh, through these accounts and could just immediately delete any accounts that have this you know inflation over a night or whatever it is it seems like there's a there's a solution there that is on the horizon that's going to kind of wipe all this out that's my gut feeling i i agree they have way more data than this website i mentioned which is kind of data that's publicly available based on they just keep a historical follower count which is public data but you have to start recording it into a a database there's another unethical system people use that instagram could stop called potting uh, do you know about potting i do yes and i've been recruited to join some pods and it's ridiculous it's like hey yeah if you want to join our pod you got to go back and like these 200 photos and then leave you know a unique comment that is actually correlates to the content of the photo and it has to be more than five words and if you do that we'll let you into the pod and then every time you post a photo you can let us know and we will give you what you gave us and you know so yeah it's kind of this false little community community of inflating each other's numbers right and that's that's based on another flawed system which is the algorithm and that's the goal of that is to game the algorithm so that your posts are seen more often and i think if you take a step back in fact i argue this in the book that if they just get rid of that algorithm totally and this is an option that i say like why not go with the spotify netflix model in that right now their, their current Modus operandi is to keep you on your screen as long as possible because the longer you're on your screen, the more ads you see. Mm. Now, that's how they make money, and there's nothing wrong with ads, but that's not best for society, and it's not best for the human condition. We all see how often people are looking at their phones, not just teenagers, but grown-ups too, and this is not natural human behaviors because they're so good at that algorithm. They know how to give you the dopamine. It's basically gambling. You're just pulling the thing. Pulling the handle, and you get a you get a little uh, jackpot every now and then. It's just it's just gambling. It's as simple, right? But this is not good for humans. They could be doing so much more to help society and help humans. But it, instead, if they were just to charge five bucks a month for Facebook and Instagram, I bet you most people would pay. Absolutely. Right? Some people would be upset, but people are already upset. Mm-hmm. And so, if they would just require that, not not even making an option, require it then suddenly you don't have to see any ads and you can start to see stuff in chronological order. Um, and also my other case, my business case for them is that now, Hey, guess what? Instagram, Facebook, you would have everybody's credit card number 
or bank account number, and now you can start selling stuff directly, right? Yeah. Because you know, once you my my credit card number is in iTunes and Amazon, I just go buy stuff on a lark all the time. Mm-hmm. And so they they could blow away Amazon and iTunes and all that stuff by selling stuff direct and stop showing you ads, and they could make a cut from that. Um, I think another idea is that once it's all private like that, that brands can contact you. They can say, hey, man, I, I looked at your Instagram. You've got a good 50,000 followers. Like Tesla can contact you. Say, dude, we want we want you to have a Tesla for three months, and we're going to pay you $50,000. But they do it through Instagram, and Instagram contacts you and say, hey, Tesla wants to give you $50,000. Here's the term. We're going to take 20%. We're Instagram, you know, for our fee and the rest goes to you. And here's the term of your agreement. You know, you need to take 10 photos of, of yourself, you know, uh, topless in a Tesla. <laughs> and, uh, and then you would say yes or no. Right. And that's the, then, then it's a protected private system where brands know what they're getting. Influencers know what they're getting. Instagram takes a cut. This seems incredibly obvious to me yeah and they still make billions of dollars um and people will be happier and protected and it will help people's lives totally it sounds like instagram needs to hire you to consult them on a couple things i would i would absolutely pay five dollars a month to have a chronological instagram again and i know numerous people that would do the same thing and and you're right they would already have all of your credit card information stored and all you need is your little thumbprint that you put on the bottom of your iphone and then just put some products up here and there that are, you know, catered to the likes that this person has and yeah, make it, give me a buy button and watch what happens. <laughs> it's going to be ugly for me, but awesome for you. Yeah. You know, I, I can't be the only one that has this idea. Surely there's someone in that, in that organization that has the idea, but you, you know how corporations work. They've got probably 30% of their staff focused on advertising sales, putting ads in ad optimization um, so it's just like a, a, ship, a giant cruise ship that's going in the wrong direction. And even though there's these nice innovative ideas that would save them money, possibly incre- increase revenue, um, don't know if it's going to happen or not. Yeah. That kind of change may have to come from the outside. But then you've got this thing called a coordination problem where it's hard to get a billion people from one platform to another platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Something's going to happen. Yeah, it's it's inevitable, and the the more that you think about it, the more you see it coming. I'm I'm curious because you are a father, and because you're so involved and knowledgeable about this social media world, how are you going to um, help your girls, especially your young daughters, navigate social media? And if you could talk about like, I mean, when are you going to let them have a smartphone, and when are you going to let them have social media, and how are you going to monitor? Have you given any thought to those types of things? Yeah, I think about it every day. Yeah. Um, my, I did have, they're both on Instagram for sure. I had to make their accounts private. That's one thing. How old are they? 10 and 13. Okay. Uh, their names are Search and Destroy. Um, no, just kidding. And anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, my my 13-year-old, um, she's a teenager now. Yeah, so she's kind of got the hormone thing going on. So she has anxiety. It's made worse, certainly, by Instagram. I have a study in the book. There's many studies about how Instagram increases anxiety in, in young women. Um, basically, you know, it's no big surprise, but it's a constant public scoreboard where you're being rated um, against other people. 
based entirely on what you look like, which is not healthy. If you're being constantly reminded that you don't measure up, um, this is all you can. I, I also make the argument this has always been a problem. You know, you might get a like I remember growing up, you get like a Vogue magazine or a Cosmopolitan magazine, and there's beautiful models in there. And you look at it and you feel like, oh, I'm kind of chubby or I'm not that awesome. But you might only look at it, you know, once a week or something. Now you're looking at this thing every 10 or 15 minutes or even more often. And so it's a constant reminder that you're not attractive enough. And this is, this is a, a terrible thing for the psyches of, of girls and, and men, too, by the way. It's, not just, it's mostly girls, but it's also a problem for, for men. Um, so um, I, you know, basically as a parent, you know, I just fill them with love and I tell them they're, they're beautiful and they're awesome. My youngest daughter, she's a real ham, Scarlett. She has her own YouTube channel. She's crazy like me. You know, kids are different, but she's like the crazy one like me. Always dancing around, um, larger than life, funny than anything. She actually mimics a lot of YouTube stars she follows. If you watch these young YouTube stars, they all like overreact. Um, it is almost like sitcoms in the 50s, mm-hmm. like Bollywood movies. Um, like huge reactions, way over the top. Um, so my daughter does the same thing, but she's kind of funny, and we laugh at it, and we kind of probably encourage this kind of behavior because she's such a nut, and we think it's funny. And like one day, I was walking by Scarlett's room, and she was like staring at herself in the mirror and just kind of caressing her cheek. And I walked in, I said, Scarlett, what what are you doing? She goes, Oh, I'm just looking at myself. I said, Oh, okay. I said, You know. Scarlet, um, beauty is not real. Beauty is is on the inside. It's what comes out of your your heart. She goes, mm, maybe, but in this case, beauty is on my face. <laughs> <laughs> Which of course I laughed at. I thought it was funny and this sort of thing. But yeah, you know, I mean, there's this great thing. Like you, it's just good DNA. Hey, lucky, you know, your your parents, you know, had sex in the back of a Pontiac, and they both had good DNA. So lucky you. Has nothing to do with real beauty. Yeah, but that's not the message that's being communicated uh, through these things. So I think it's just I think it's it's not um, plausible to keep your kids off social media um, because it's a thing, right? And it's part of the tapestry of actual networking and human connection now. But I think that you continue to do um, loving offline stuff like board games, tell them they're beautiful go on hikes, have some kind of a balance because these kids are going to have to learn how to navigate these digital networks. Mm -hmm. Um, In the future, they are not going to probably be sitting around a group of 100 other people or like a village like we used to. Um, They do need to know how to navigate these waters and have an understanding of it. Um, So I think just try your best to balance that with the real world. Um, And we don't honestly, I don't even do that good of a job of it. I I try. Uh, We just took a little camper van trip all around New Zealand, all of us, me and uh, me and uh, Tina and the kids, and it was still kind of hard to get them off. We would pull into a camper van place. I go, "Do they have Wi-Fi here?" And we're like, oh, I can "Maybe, see." <laughs> <laughs> 
I have two daughters, a four-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and I'm just waiting for that moment, anticipating that moment where they want the smartphone, where their friends are getting smartphones and social media and all that. And I see it firsthand with all the freshmen in high school that I teach because um, I only teach freshman okay. classes, and they're just they're so, so addicted to their phones, and mostly Snapchat. I mean, Snapchat is just rampant. They cannot get off of Snapchat. But I think that I'm a little bit at an advantage um, because – I've seen uh, what these what social media can do to the psyche and and just kind of the negative sides of it. So I think this younger generation of parents is just more aware of what can happen. So we're going to be a little bit more cautious. But you're right, especially with young girls, making sure that they know that that they are beautiful regardless of their physical appearance and that beauty is on the inside and having a healthy home where they are loved and they're not seeking, you know, attention and love from other people. A a lot of my students, unfortunately, I can, I can tell which ones have, have daddy issues and which ones have mommy issues. And it's just by the way that they dress and the way that they act and the way that they, you know, always are attached to their phone or, you know, the makeup that they wear and stuff. So it's just like, it really points out the importance of having a strong household where, they know that they are loved and you are playing board games with them and you're having dinner and you it's stable right um it's it's just so important yeah well i hope you know it is the fault fault of the parents quite a bit and i do hope some of the parents read this book too and kind of get their minds right Mm -hmm. because they're they are addicted to these things too they look at the screen all the time and you know maybe they're not involved in these selfie wars but they get sucked into other groups. You know, this is the algorithm doesn't just, it feeds bad stuff too. This is why we see there's anti-vaxxers all over the place. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, now there's more flat earthers than ever. These <laughs> algorithms, they're unconscious. They don't know what they're serving up. You know, like if you like give a lot of feedback to like the Chicago bears, like, Oh, this guy likes the Chicago bears. I'm going to show him more Chicago. They don't know it's Chicago, Chicago bears or anti-vaxxer mm-hmm. or flat earther. And these algorithms keep the parents addicted to their phones and not being mindful and not spending time with their kids. It's not not good. There's another path. People can people can learn this and they'll be more fulfilled. Yeah, that's a great point, man. Well, I'm stoked to dive into your book. It's in my mailbox, literally. So as I finish this book I'm in right now, which should be tomorrow, I will be diving into yours tomorrow evening, which I'm stoked about, man. This was awesome, Trey. Thank you, dude. Uh, Yeah, I'll put all the giveaway stuff in the show notes. I'll link to your website and your Instagram and all that. Any last words or anything like that for the listeners? Um, No, I think I would just continue to challenge people to to read a lot. Um, You know, think think about love. Think about why are we here? What are you doing, man? What's Mm -hmm. your life about? Uh, how can you help other? How can you help yourself be more conscious? How can you help other people be conscious? Um, you know, I I'm nobody special. I'm just curious about consciousness, and I think that when you lead this kind of a life, it, it softly influences other people to lead that kind of a life. And it's it's a there's always better lives out there, yeah. and um, it's not that hard. Just make you know. There's Jordan Peterson has many great little thoughts in his book, and one of them is just you know, make today a little better than yesterday. You don't have to, you don't have to like go do something amazing. Just make it a little improvement Mm -hmm. on the previous day. And over time, this will, there will be an accretion of awesomeness in your life. Absolutely. 12 rules for life. Great book. Awesome, Trey. Thanks again, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, big guy. 
A special thanks to King's Kaleidoscope for the instrumental used on the intro and outro of this podcast. Also, a big thanks to the good people at Capital Floats, which is Northern California's premier sensory deprivation and float tank facility. I am a frequent user there, and the experience is transformative to say the least. And for listeners of this podcast, they are offering an exclusive deal of 40% off the normal price for a single float. Just go to CapitalFloats.com and use the promo code Life Enchanted with no spaces at checkout. If you're in Northern California, you definitely want to take advantage of this. Please remember that I am not a doctor, so definitely consult your physician before making any sudden diet, supplement, or lifestyle changes suggested in any of these episodes. If you're interested in connecting with me, you can send an email to nick, N-I-C-K, at mylifeenchanted.com, or you can find me on Instagram at mylifeenchanted. Peace.